Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Golden Arches haven't lost their shine. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Motley Fool analyst Jason Moser. Jason, how's your Monday going so far? Hey, so far so good. It's nice weather out there. How about you, Deidre? I am loving. I'm loving our weather, but I'm thinking about our people in California who are having a bit bit of a tough weather time. Yeah, yeah. Canceled the final round of the Pebble Beach Pro Am out there in California I'm, uh, on Monterey. I just was. Uh, I mean, when when the weather's that bad, yeah, you you, yeah. Know, you know you need to take note. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get into what's happening with the markets. Uh, you know, last week, big week, we had you know, Meta, we had Amazon, we had Apple, you know, uh, and and mostly a, a pretty great week. This week, we've got probably more earnings, but a wide variety of large companies, maybe not your ones that are that are at the at the top of market moving, but really important to cover. One of them, McDonald's. You, you got to talk about McDonald's, right? And Absolutely. Yeah, of course. And if you look at the headlines, uh, you know, I would say looking at the headlines versus looking at the actual earnings. If you look at the headlines, it's going to be companies missing revenue targets. But you know, I look at it. Companies still able to deliver comparable sales. You know, that increase every quarter. At about a little over four percent in sales growth in the U.S. in this quarter. Don't you think that sometimes McDonald's deserves a little more respect than it sometimes gets? I absolutely do, and one of the reasons why I feel that way, Dieter, is because in my my early days here, when I first got here uh, at the Fool, McDonald's was the company I looked at and kind of didn't give it that credit that it deserved. I thought, you know what, that's yesterday's news, and people don't want McDonald's now. They're going to Starbucks and they're going to Chipotle or whatever. No, McDonald's absolutely deserves a ton of credit. I mean, even. You know, I'm not a big McDonald's guy myself these days, but it's it's impossible to ignore the success that this company's had over the course of its existence. I mean, it's it's easy, I think, to view it as perhaps an older or more challenged brand here domestically, uh, particularly. But I think when you look at the numbers, they say otherwise. And this is a company that still has a ton of brand equity globally. And just having had the experience of traveling and living overseas for several years, I mean, I definitely saw that. I've seen that. You brought up the comps numbers. I mean, I think it's absolutely worth mentioning. I mean, US comps this quarter were up 4.3%, international operated markets up 4.4%. Their developmental markets, they saw uh, underperformance there, right? Now, a lot of that, they said, reflected. Uh, the impact of the war going on in the Middle East right now. And that's very understandable. And there's some sort of second order impacts that come from that as well. So you got to give them a little bit of a pass on that. That's just something that's completely out of their control, kind of like the weather, so to speak. Um, but I mean, when you look at shareholders who've held onto these shares over the last decade, this stock has returned 300%. I mean, well, well ahead of the market's performance there. 
and in, you attributed to that brand equity, I think, but also, I mean, it's a franchise model that's tremendous. I mean, they've got 40,000 plus restaurants, 95% of those are franchised. So, yeah, that doesn't gin up a ton on the top line compared to something like a company owned operation like Chipotle, for example. But what it enables them to do is really bring some impressive profitability down to the bottom line. You put that all together. And I mean, it just, it's, it's not a surprise to me to see. McDonald's performs so well, but yeah, it's 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 one of those companies I think that a lot of people just sort of they'll look at it and just kind of just keep on walking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's true, and you know, uh, you mentioned the the franchises. You know, this is also uh, I love to mention that it's always that it's a stealth real estate company. You know, I mean they yeah. they own they own all of that land, and that and that's very valuable and and a good a good part of their a good part of the company. But I wanted to talk a little bit about what you said there about the U.S. And, you know, I feel like there is that perception that people don't go to McDonald's. But then you look at their loyalty program. You've got 150 million members that, that have been active in the last 90 days. So that's that's huge. 20 billion in sales in 2023. And I like the way that they're 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 pivoting things. They're constantly tweaking things. So we think of them as, you know, burgers, the Big Mac they're making, like the double Big Mac now. But chicken is as big as a sales driver for them. And they're seeing that globally and they're trying to figure out like, okay, more of the world is interested in eating a chicken sandwich versus a burger. So how do we make a better chicken sandwich? And now they're taking on they're taking on coffee. You know, it started with, you know, it's just a cheaper way to get coffee. And the more you get it with your, you know, with your breakfast, that's great. But they're they're tweaking this too in interesting ways. I don't know. I I like the way they use data a lot. I do too, and I mean, in this age of AI, right? We talk a lot about AI um, and, and all of the potential that that it offers. I mean, really, the lifeblood of AI ultimately it's data, right? And I mean, we, we've seen these companies from from Chipotle to Starbucks and everywhere in between um, utilizing these loyalty programs to really take advantage of getting as much customer data as they possibly can. And, and what that ultimately does, it, it enables it enables these companies to keep their customers within that universe, and then and then cater offerings specifically to those individual customers. And I, I think we've seen the investments in technology really pay off as well. I mean, it makes me think of companies like Domino's and Papa John's, which, I mean, no, maybe those aren't the pizza the pizza concepts that that many might have at the at the top of their list, given some of the local choices that exist where they may live. But but the bottom line is they're very convenient. They're they're wonderful options. And and God, I tell you, the technology, the investments in technology, they make it so easy to order. Right, they have loyalty programs that keep you coming back for more. Um, and McDonald's absolutely taking advantage of that of that same dynamic. And to your point on the chicken, I mean, I think that is that that's important, right? In this in this age, we've really seen Chick Fil A take off, and I think a lot of companies are trying to figure out ways to compete with a, a Chick Fil A. Uh, chicken, absolutely, a ton of growth there. And, and I was reading through the call, and this the investments and the time they put McDonald's has put into this McCrispy chicken sandwich. I mean, it's really resulted in some serious drives to the business, right? I mean, you've got. Uh, I mean, they're talking about this. This is scaled to a one billion dollar brand across thirty uh, across thirty markets worldwide. But now they also mentioned the chicken category represents twenty five billion dollars in annual system wide sales, which essentially puts it on par with beef. Right, their yep. beef offerings, and they're sitting there also making these investments in in, in making their burgers better as well at the same time. So. It does feel like 
while there's a ton of brand equity and, and a lot that they could probably just sort of you know, hit cruise control and just keep on moving forward. I mean, they don't seem to want to rest on their laurels, um, and, and and it's in, it's refreshing, I think, to see a concept like McDonald's really trying to up its game and compete with a lot of these fast ca- fast casual competitors out there today. Well, and they've had some some swings that have missed in the past. You know, we talked a little bit about Starbucks. Uh, you know, McDonald's has this new concept, the the Cosmics. It's this sort of like yeah. cold coffee drinks, and it's it's you know they've just tested it out. It's I think in about ten locations, and it's doing you know traffic's been pretty strong so far. And then you know I was listening to the Starbucks call last week, and they were talking about uh, the need to try to get people there in the afternoons. So it seems like this afternoon thing is is interesting. But I'm I'm wondering. I mean, McDonald's has the room to play with things like this, but what do you think about that concept? Would you be driving through the the Cosmics to get yourself an afternoon drink? I mean, if I was going by one, probably. I don't know that I'd go out of my way, but I mean, it also could be if if I was going by one and I went by there once, maybe I would find it compelling and want to want to go out of my way um, for for future trips. But I mean, I, I think it's important to note this this. Cosmic's offering. I mean, they they identified right this this one hundred billion dollar category. They quote um, across their top six markets that really focus on these these beverages. Um, I mean, it's not just beverages. I mean, if you if you look at the Cosmic's menu, I mean, it, it is it is more than just beverages. And honestly, hey, listen, I don't I, I could see those McPops doing pretty well. I don't know if you haven't <laughs> seen them. Check that menu. The McPops look pretty good. Um, but but I absolutely love that they're trying this because again, I think in many cases it's a matter of convenience. If they present a good offering and and it's convenient, then people are going to give it a shot. And if we look back through the history of something like a Starbucks, for example, I mean, right, that that's a company that has has started to recognize the benefits of convenience and incorporating more things like drive-throughs into into their restaurants. And so McDonald's, I think, has always been really known for, you know, low prices, convenience, right? This is something where they they really specialize. And now they're starting to make that that Sort of that that progress or that leap up and into bringing a little bit more quality to their offering. And again, I think that menu uh, with Cosmics it's compelling. It's different. It's not just McDonald's. And I think that will lead a lot of people to give it a shot. Uh, and then it just is. It's a matter of whether they find it compelling enough to keep going back. Well, and I think there's a whole new category emerging that I'm like Starbucks is trying to get people there for the like the drink and the snack. And we've seen uh, you know other other companies are starting to make these sort of like. Later offerings that that you come in for the drink and the snack option, especially in the afternoons. You know, it's it sort of reminds me a little bit of when they were trying to make. Uh, I think it was Taco Bell that tried to make like fourth meal. I feel like they're trying to make another another meal in here. But it's the fourth or fifth meal, but it's at a different time of day, right? I think this is a probably the time of day that more people can relate to because I think the fourth meal was probably geared towards people who had been out really late at night. Yes, had, yeah. Had the munchies maybe on the way home. Uh, this this seems like it's geared towards a little bit. Of a different audience and probably a bigger audience for that matter. Yeah. So thinking about Starbucks and, and uh, McDonald's, uh, the role of China is is huge. Uh, both of them are thinking about China. Uh, late last year, McDonald's they increased their mid- uh, minority stake in China to forty eight percent. They opened a thousand new restaurants, or actually a little bit over that, uh, last year in China, all time high. It's still a small. It's a it's a really pretty small percent of the business. Um, but how? How are you thinking about companies that have this large consumer exposure in China right now? Because we've got we've got sort of geopolitical concerns there as well as some consumer weakness. 
Yeah, I, I think in the grand scheme of things, I, I view it ultimately as a positive. And I, I've said it before. Um, I mean, when it comes to investing in China, I, I know what I don't know. I, investing in pure play China just doesn't work for me. I've watched it play out over the last 15 years in, in, in how so much of this hype ends up sort of sputtering out. I mean, with exceptions, of course, but for the most part, it's just been a very difficult market to to, to fully understand and, and to, I, I think really honestly have faith in. But but I think when you when you I view these multinationals of Starbucks, McDonald's, Apple, Coca Cola, you name it, these are great ways to get satisfactory exposure to China without actually having to worry so much about the minutia, right? Not not having to worry so much about what's going on over there. And in when you look at the state of the Chinese consumer today, I know things aren't all that great right now. I think there's reason to be hopeful though that the Chinese consumer will start seeing better days sooner rather than later. I mean there's a lot of pessimism out there. Challenges from the COVID policies, ongoing property crisis, that that was a real one-two punch. Uh, high rates of youth unemployment, poor economic forecasts, you got the collapse of Evergrande. All of these things put together, there's just a ton of pessimism out there in regard to the Chinese consumer today. And I think that's precisely when investors need to start looking, right? Because we know that things eventually will improve. Perhaps we're getting a little bit closer. And for me, the ideal way to participate in an economy like that is going to be through the multinationals like your McDonald's and Starbucks of the world. Yeah, and with McDonald's, you get a nice little dividend along the way. That's a very good point. Well, I want to pivot and talk about something else that kind of is on my mind this morning. Did you watch the Grammys? I must admit, I did not. No. Okay. <laughs> well, there was this commercial that that caught my attention, uh, sort of outside of the other controversies that may have caught my attention, and it was this Snap commercial taking aim at TikTok and Instagram Reels, and basically kind of saying that you know. Social media, social media is bad. Snapchat is good. It's this fun, happy place. We've got these like, oh look, I'm a, I'm a broccoli face, you know. So <laughs> you know, so it's interesting. They had this big ad spend last night. They've got this new campaign, and then this morning they cut about ten percent of their global workforce. They're reporting tomorrow, and I, but I'm thinking about where they're taking their strategy. There was this leaked email last year that said. Uh, that Evan Spiegel sent out the CEO. Social media is dead. Long live Snapchat. So, you talked about Meta on on Friday uh, on the show. Uh, certainly, it's it, it Meta's going nowhere from what I can see and from from the earnings last week. But is there a case for the idea that social isn't quite as social anymore? I. I I think there is to an extent. I think social is going to be with us in one form or another going forward. I mean, at least I would have to imagine for the rest of my life. I think it's ultimately just a matter of what people are looking to get out of it. And I do understand if you know folks are pulling back on the reins a little bit and maybe not being quite as social or sharing quite as much as much. We've seen that 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 stuff can certainly be used against you. Um, it is absolutely impossible for me to buy into the notion that, that Meta is on the wane. Um, the portfolio of app strategy for them has really paid off, and we just saw that um, in spades here in the most recent quarter. Snap, I think, is in a little bit of a bind, because they still really are just Snapchat. And that that up and coming generation likely isn't looking at it with the same rose colored glasses that the previous one did. And when you look at the numbers, I mean, revenue growth has hit a wall. And again, like you said, I mean, Meta's report 
tells us there's still plenty of growth out there to be had. And, and I was interested to kind of look at Snap and, and compare it to Twitter at, at a certain point of time to get kind of an idea of where these two businesses were. You look at Twitter, which was acquired back in, in the back half of 2022. But if you look at Twitter's revenue in, in, in 2022, I mean, they generated a little bit better than $5 billion in revenue. And Snap still hasn't even gotten there. And that's Twitter. I mean, a company that I think many would argue, myself included, uh, left a ton of money on the table for just a, a number of various self-inflicted reasons, right? So I, there's some lessons learned from Twitter. To me, Snap kind of rhymes. And I think when you look at the overall opportunity out there, uh, I mean, shoot, Amazon ad revenue is up 27% for the quarter, right? So, I mean, that advertising revenue is definitely out there. It's just it's companies like Snap, I think, are having a little bit of a, a more difficult time realizing it these days because social is such a difficult space when you're competing against Meta. But I think the question really for Snap investors at this point is, you know, what are you ultimately expecting from this company? Do you think it's going to grow, or is this something else? Do you feel like it's going to be acquired? Because I think, I think the growth question is a very fair one, particularly given what we've just seen play out here in the, in the early parts of earnings season. Well, thanks for breaking it down with me today, Jason. Thank you. Ricky Mulvey with Motley Fool Money here to tell you about a vehicle that is redefining sporting luxury, the Range Rover Sport. The first thing I noticed when I sat down in the driver's seat is that I felt like I was in a cockpit. You're up off the ground in a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. I also really appreciated the overhead 360-degree camera view that let me know exactly where I was going as I was backing out of the parking space. I went for a drive in the Range Rover Sport out in Littleton, Colorado, tested the accelerator just a little bit, and felt the performance and agility. It's an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. To put it plainly, the Range Rover Sport is powerful. It's also quiet and comfortable. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. I'd like to invite you to visit LandRoverUSA.com to learn more about the Range Rover Sport. Last year, Uber changed the way it counts revenue, and the difference may have an impact as the company reports this week. Ricky Mulvey caught up with Patrick Badalotta, an associate professor of instruction at the University of Texas at Austin McCombs School of Business, to discover what investors can find out beyond the headlines and in the footnotes. We talk a lot about headlines coming out of earnings, the big reporting numbers. But right now, you want to focus on the footnotes. You know, these are at the bottom of the page. As we go through earnings season, why why are the footnotes even worth an investor's time to to check out? Sure, Ricky, I love that question. And let me step back real quickly, which is I'm going to refer to the footnotes as like all of the broad, qualitative, sometimes quantitative information that's in addition to the financial statements. So not what's on the financial statements, not the main core financial metrics. But I think they're massively informative because they give additional insight and flavor and sometimes really critical details about updates and changes that it's just 
we're going to be more informed walking into earnings season or really any other assessment of a company if we've spent a little bit of time. My class, I use the phrase, you know, read good, but spend the time to avail yourself to the footnotes, the other information outside of the financial statements, because it's packed full of useful tidbits of information. And sometimes they can be hard to to parse through if you're not an, an accounting professor. Sometimes though, there's 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 some gold in there. We were trading emails before this, and you said there was a, a classic example from Apple. Yeah, let me. Your first point I want to address, and I want to give the Apple example. But I, uh, I that, that's the big challenge, which is like you know, a 10K is what 120 pages long, an S1 pre-IPO filing, something the same. And most of it, so much of it is too much of it. If I can give my opinion, is boilerplate where you're reading stuff and you're. I'm not really changing anything. The challenge is though, like the the nuggets and the insights are there. They're just not easy to find. And yeah, I'm an accounting professor. I like reading these things and I'll put my time into reading the whole thing. But it's what I try to convey in a class. And I want to use the Apple example is what I teach even at the intro financial accounting level is the footnotes are there and at times you want to, you know, grab them and think about it. So the classic one I've done over time, and this is not, you know, specifically recent news, but Apple's got a great footnote on its accounts receivable. And there's nothing to do with what's reported on the balance sheet. It's just there's a footnote that talks about it. Uh, I think it's page 40 of their 2022 10K. And they give a comment to the fact that what they're doing is they're requiring all smaller scale retailers to go out and get like third party insurance so that Apple will sell to them, you know, on account. But the reality is that the retailer has to go and get backing so that if the small third party retailer is not able, sorry, the small retailer is not able to pay Apple. Apple's still going to collect effectively insurance proceeds, so they're going to get their cash either way. The footnote shows us that like Apple has virtually no risk of collections with its accounts receivable reported on the balance sheet. Not on the balance sheet. There's nothing about that there. Read the footnote, and you realize and maybe that's something you would expect for a behemoth like Apple, but really no risk of collection given the way they structure their deals with any smaller uh, retailer. Is that something that's that's rare among companies? I could imagine a lot of companies, you know, they want to they want to get the cash that they're uh, entitled to on that account, but I, I don't know of any other companies that do that. Yeah, great, great question. I wish I had a better answer, and I don't. Like, how many use it? How many don't? And I worry that you know the classic answer is just like, well, Apple kind of can do it once because it's in such a you know position of strength. But I'll I'll give in you know, a personal finance example of this that I usually try to talk about in class, which is this is very similar to what we may face when we're getting a mortgage with PMI or private mortgage insurance. The bank's going to require us. We put less than twenty percent down to go pay for PMI insurance or private mortgage insurance, and if that's so that the bank still collects its mortgage payments effectively, if we were to fall or miss a payment or something like that, it's crazy to think about it. But it's similar. Whether it's like you have one very powerful payer, player, the bank giving us a mortgage, and one far less powerful entity, us, you know, the homeowner. And the argument is, you're going to basically make the smaller player pay the insurance to protect the larger player. That's what Apple, you know, Apple's doing a version of that with its accounts receivable, ensuring it collects. When you're one of the biggest companies on the planet, it's easy to know that other companies need you more than perhaps you need it. Uber is reporting tomorrow. This is a more recent example. Last year, the company changed how it treats discounts and promotions. We were talking about it. I think you said this was an important change. So, what happened? What'd they do? I think for this one, it's worth stepping back again and kind of talking about the way they laid things out with their initial IPO uh, filed in 2019. And there's a lot of layers to this, and there was a lot of conversations. But I want to just get to the 
uh, point, which is they did not call. So if you've taken Uber, you know, you've got Uber Eats delivered or you've, you know, taken a ride to go somewhere with an Uber. Uh, I certainly have done that, but we are not Uber's customer uh, in their IPO. We were not their customer. We were called, called riders or end users. Their customer consistent with their IPO document was the driver, you know, the driver provi- providing the driving the car, providing the transportation. And that may seem weird, but that's sort of the genesis of this whole idea. In their IPO, they had a bunch of promotions and discounts that were issued to the rider or the end user. And they were actually booking that as both revenue and then offsetting it with sales and marketing expense. I think it was, I mean, rounds to $3 billion in 2017 and 2018 combined in the two years preceding their IPO, but $3 billion. And I'm not, this is legal. There's a way that this works out. It's because the riders, uh, we're not their customers. But but to simplify it, maybe oversimplify it, it's similar to saying that you know they were effectively buying their own services. And that's what it works out to. So, if they gave a rider a $20 coupon, that $20 coupon was counting as revenue. It was removed via sales and marketing expense, so no effect on like operating income, but still an opportunity to increase revenue, uh, to boost the revenue growth in the early stages of the company. So now the revenue is not, not comparable, and maybe you'll even see a slight revenue decline as, as they make this change. Why do you think Uber's making it? Yeah, so let's just be specific about the change too. But then I want to—I definitely want to offer some, you know, lens into what we can think about before the 2023 earnings come out. What they changed in the second quarter of 2023, and I actually think based on the numbers, it was like towards the end of the second quarter. But I don't know the exact date. What they changed in the second quarter of 2023 is in many of their major markets. It looks like it's roughly two thirds using the quarter third quarter numbers, but they now are classifying the. The rider effectively as a customer. And as they're classifying the rider as a customer now, that actually means that they're not, if they give promotions and discounts, which they're continuing to do, it's not a removal of promotions and discounts, but now they're not counting the promotions and discounts as revenue. And they're also not offsetting it as a marketing, sales and marketing expense. Ricky, you already alluded to this, and I just want to flesh it out a bit more. The challenge here is this change occurred mid year, roughly. So it's going to be hard to compare anything coming out tomorrow with uh, 2023's numbers with anything that happened in 2022 or any prior years. And even within 2023, because the change didn't happen at the beginning, it might be kind of hard to think about quarter-to-quarter comparisons or year-over-year comparisons. In this case, to reiterate your point, revenue will actually be smaller because they're not including. And I think in quarter three, it was $521 million. So that just a one quarter, five hundred twenty-one million dollars that like would have been in revenue is not there, and also is going to be removed from sales and marketing expense. So the year-over-year revenue growth, all else held equal, is going to be lower. It's just going to be harder to achieve any kind of growth because stuff that was classified in revenue is no longer classified that way. And maybe this, maybe there's a tie to the story where Kashra Shahi comes in as the CEO of Uber, wanting a sort of leaner. More focused company, and and maybe take away some of that noise in, in the S one. Uh, I know we've made made fun of it on the show in the years past. The total addressable market was four billion people, or basically everybody in the sixty three countries that it operated in at at the time. I mean, do you think that with with this move in the footnotes, the way that Uber's changing the way it counts revenue, is that part of the story here with with the company as it is today? 
Love that question, and I want to elaborate on it, but I think there's one more level, and I hate to be nitpicky about this to flesh Go for it. Coaches, You're the professor. That uh, sales and marketing expense is also going to go down. And so I just caution, I'm not, it's not a criticism of Uber in any way, but just preparing us for what we're going to see is that year over year, sales and marketing expense should also decrease You know, using the third quarter number alone by that $521 million. It'll be more than that because we don't have the fourth quarter information yet, but the sales and marketing expense will decrease as a dollar amount and also will decrease as a percent of revenue. So I mentioned that we're going to see like margin improvement where one expense decreases as, as a percent of revenue. And it's not good nor bad. It's just a result of this reporting change. So worth being informed when we walk in there because what we, you know, we don't want to be saying is, wow, look at this great efficiency improvement with sales and marketing. They must be getting better at promotions and discounts or marketing. And I'm not in any way saying they're getting worse, but no, the, the data just mathematically will lead to sales and marketing expense decreasing as a percent of revenue. So that's like efficiency that's worth understanding the reporting behind. But but Ricky, I love your other question. I want to kind of flush it out a bit more as well. Yeah, I'm a I was pretty critical kind of looking at Uber in the pre-IPO stage. We've done a bunch of classes and you know, kind of offering that there's a lot of questions and confusion and seem like distractions. And, you know, then COVID hits and just upends everything, which, you know, is tough for so many different companies. But I think the Uber that emerged is uh, it's a really fascinating business model. And I think they've kind of figured out what they are. And the phrase I use when I talk about them in class is this is not a replacement for individual car ownership. You know, this is not a, a target market of four billion people. But what they are is a a platform of convenience. Uh, a company that can offer us rides when we need rides, uh, can offer us goods, and I, I I applaud the fact that Uber Eats has become so inclusive of not just you know fast food restaurant meals, but you can get delivery groceries and florists and like all these other things, which I think makes it more convenient for the customer, but also a better you know driving opportunity, better utilization uh, for the driver. So I think that like focus on the core and the. Getting away from the autonomous and the replacement for individual car ownership is a is a massive uh, you know step in the direction. Still questions, still stuff to figure out, but uh, you know that that core competency, the platform of convenience, is something that we like. Convenience, we like stuff. We like you know getting places and getting things delivered to us, and that may be a, that may be a successful move in many ways for them. Seems like it is. If you're not gonna, you know, maybe you're checking out the foot footnotes in a report. I think one one piece of uh, research you shared with me that is is worth investors' attention, though, that they can track for the companies that they own and follow, is the risk factors in an annual report. And there are some researchers that that found that how companies' management changes the risk factors and changing their wording can often predict maybe future trouble for for the company. And that section is worth a little bit more attention. Yeah, I, I agree. And I say that, you know, my thoughts on reading the literature and everything, it seems like reading the footnotes is still not that commonplace. You know, full of information, but I love teaching it because, hey, that's your possible chance for differentiation. You know, the change in the language, what's there. And I, I agree. Sometimes the risk can be informative. I love the way they were looking at it in that study. But I'll offer a few other areas I think are worth checking out. And you know, we gave the specific discounts and promotions and sales and marketing with Uber. But uh, some other ones I, I strongly recommend is first and foremost, actually, I want to rank this: the segments. Look at the segments of the business. You know, segments move in different directions. This is true for Uber. Their freight segment during 2023 has been going down year over year, decline in revenue growth. Where deliveries and mobility, you know, those are growing at different rates. So 
Companies have segments. They don't just do one thing. Read as much as you can off the income statement or the financial statements to find out about segments. Another one, MD&A, Management Discussion and Analysis. Uh, you know, they don't always give you everything you need, but often there's that movement. Hey, here's factors that contributed to a trend, factors that offset, that granular data that gives you us a little bit more about like, okay, let me know a bit about the story behind it. Revenue recognition, which I would argue is massively important for Uber and its S1, of realizing, wait, who's their customer? Uh, how do you do this? And then if you have companies with revenue recognized over time or have some discretion on, are they the agent in the transaction? Or are they sort of the main provider? Like There's more there as well. Risks, looking at debt footnotes was can be certainly informative in cases like Silicon Valley Bank and others. Taxes in certain cases. So yeah, really try to figure out what's valuable for the company and then use the footnotes as like, you know, hopefully you're thirsty for, I want to get more information. I want to get granular data on what's there. Patrick Badalato is a professor of accounting and finance at the McComb School of Business at the University of Texas. Thank you so much for your time and your insight. Thank you, Ricky. I really appreciate it. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Woolard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.